All right, welcome back. <clears throat> we are on class seven of eight in this series called Doubt and Deconstruction. Let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that you have given us. And uh, what more can be said than to, to us has been said through your word, Lord. What a firm foundation you have given us. And um, what, a, what an incredible opportunity we have again to gather um, and study your word, Lord, and uh, apply its truths to our lives. We pray that you would humble our hearts, focus, focus our minds, um, and would you be our teacher this morning through me, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we spent the first six classes focusing a little bit more on the idea of doubt. One of our major theme verses was Jude, verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. And thinking through, okay, what, how can we as a church um, be a people who, who knows how to have mercy on those who doubt? And we um, listened to a video by Zach Eswine where he talked about how to handle doubt. Um, and he kind of unpacked uh, Thomas's doubt. And he said, um, bring all the faith you have. He said, know that doubt is its own kind of faith. He said, pay attention to the emotional pain under the doubt. And then understand what it's like to experience Christ's grace in the midst of that. And I would just add, it's something he said in that video. It wasn't as one of his four points, but one, one thing I would add is in, in, in your doubt, stay connected to the community of faith. I think that's been one of the most helpful things for me um, in my doubts and, uh, is if, if my faith is, is in a weaker place, being around others whose faith is strong. I was kind of mentioning this in my sermon last week, you know, hearing them sing, hearing them uh, pray, hearing them love the Word of God can just really encourage your soul. Um, and he pointed out that, that, that Thomas stayed in the community of faith. Uh, there's more that could be said on that, but uh, we've looked at doubt in the Old Testament, doubt in the New Testament, and then we watched a, a video also of um, John the Baptist's doubt. Uh, Joe Novenson unpacked that. And then last week, Dan uh, talked about the, the doctrine of hell and how that is um, a huge source of doubt for believers and a, and a, you know, a reason for skepticism among others. So Dan um, talked about that as much as he could in one class. There's so much you can cover there. Um, he, he had meant to bring a handout last week and didn't get to it on time, so he, he printed it out. It is on the sound booth in um, the back of this room if you want to grab one on your way out. Um, he's got some, some helpful things in there. Um, so the last two classes, I'm going to focus more to the second part of the title of this class, Deconstruction, or that, that's kind of what it's popularly called. You can call it deconversion. You can call it apostasy. I'm going to probably use the word apostasy more today. It's a word that shows up a couple times in the New Testament. So I'm going to try to do sort of a beginner's theology of apostasy today. And then um, next week I'll kind of just do a wrap-up on that, maybe get a little more practical and maybe how to... How to um, you know, handle those maybe in your life who've maybe apostatized. 
and then I'm going to talk some about the beauty of Jesus. I'm going to draw from um, someone who, who has uh, done some work on how trying to help Christians think through how to move towards people who have um, deconverted. I'm going to try to share some helpful things that I've found from that by a guy named Robert Cunningham, who's a PCA pastor in Lexington, Kentucky. All right, so deconstruction. Um, so these are, I just want to show you some resources that have come out just in the last couple of years, all right? So 2021, this book comes out, The Anatomy of Deconversion. 2021, this book comes out, it's a, published by the Gospel Coalition. It's a bunch of various authors. Before You, Before you Lose Your Faith, um, this book by A.J. Swoboda, he's a pastor in, in Oregon, After Doubt. It's kind of both about doubt and deconstruction. Um, this book, Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane, it's, it's about several things, but it has a whole section on doubt and deconstruction in it. Tim Keller, his latest quarterly, he comes out with a quarterly, quarter um, articles. His latest one was on deconstruction. Um, Michael Kruger, I'm going to show a little clip of later this today. Um, he has written several things in the last couple of years on deconstruction. Uh, Gospel Coalition has several um, articles on doubt and deconstruction. And then here's just a sampling of podcast episodes of, you know, fairly well-followed Christian podcasts or where they're, where they're talking about this. So I guess my question to you is, why do you think there's been so much writing and discussion on deconstruction and deconversion um, lately. These are all, all of these things are within the last couple of years. Is it just a fad or is it like publishers trying to take advantage of a fad and, and earn money? Is there, is there maybe something to this? Like I, I would guess that there's a higher concentration of discussion on this in the last couple of years than there has been in the last several decades. Not that it hasn't been talked about. Any any thoughts, do you, or do you think it's always been talked about in Christian circles? Because we've said in here that this is something that is a reality since the fall. So why do you think there would be so much discussion on it in the broader Christian circles? Any thoughts? Mm-hmm. That what has been accelerating? Okay, okay. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Gideon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now that's that's a definitely a I think a huge huge point. So in in one sense, I, I think there there there's not anything really new about um, people leaving the faith. Uh, as we've as we'll get into today, it's it's always always been part of the people of God, even in the Old Testament. Um, I think, yeah, I think one big difference is social media, where 
Maybe it's been happening at fairly consistent rates over the years, but now we're just more exposed to it. People have more access to stories of people deconverting. Um, you know, you got the Joshua Harris Instagram post. Um, Abraham Piper, John Piper's son, has went viral on, I think it was TikTok, just, you know, completely leaving the faith and, and just um, um, ridiculing Christians. Um, maybe you've heard of Rhett and Link. Some of you know they're actually from this area. Some of you are friends with them. Um, the lead singer of Hawk Nelson, which was a big Christian band um, several years ago, the, one of the lead singers of Hillsong, have all kind of publicly left the faith. Um, and so social media has become kind of a place to evangelize uh, deconstruction. Um, Research, though, does seem to show that in the last 15 years, a number of people who once identified as a follower of Christ, and that phrase needs to be qualified, um, are leaving the faith. As far back as 2009, Pew Research Center said that people are leaving Christianity at a five to six times the historic rate. For every one person coming to faith, four are leaving the faith. I don't know how reliable those statistics are, but I thought that was interesting. Um... Pine Tops Foundation, it's a Christian organization uh, really focused on evangelism. They did an aggregate study of, of several studies and said that in the next 30 years will represent the largest missions opportunity in the history of America. Um, the largest and fastest numerical shift in religious affiliation in the history of the country is happening right now. They call this, the, they've started this initiative called the Great Opportunity. I think that COVID hasn't helped. Um, I think the political landscape lately hasn't helped. Um, and, you know, the first video we watched by Mark Ryan, he talked about how I think hundreds of years ago, if you were thinking about leaving the faith, there were so many buffers in society. There was such a believing society in the sense of at least belief in God and belief in the transcendent. And with that not as, as the same um, now, it's, it's more possible if you are considering leaving, there's not as many buffers to, to kind of keep you. Maybe, maybe people hundreds of years ago would leave the faith, but they'd be quiet about it. Um, now you can be more loud about it um, and not really have many social consequences to that. One person I was listening to is saying, we're probably going to see the, the whole idea of nominal Christianity not be as much of a thing in the coming years which could, there could be benefits to that. Um, so, yeah, just a few introductory thoughts. Uh, yes? That's a great question. Um, I am not sure. I'm not sure. My, I, my guess is that was uh, United States. Uh, that, that seems to be what it was. All right. Yes? Oh, Bruce. People leaving Christianity at five to six times the historic rate. I don't know. So that, yeah, that could be a, you're saying that maybe it's, maybe that's a market, you know, over-exaggerating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. For every one person coming to faith, four leaving the faith is what Pew Research is saying. Mm-hmm. 
That's fair. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. That's a great point, Bruce. Yeah, Ligonier just did their study that they do every couple of years on the state of theology, and it was very discouraging, especially for the younger generation. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah, Kirk. Yeah, so, yeah, thanks for your interaction on that. Those are helpful helpful thoughts. Um, yeah, so kind of diving into what I'll call a beginner's theology of apostasy. And this, I know, is a sensitive subject for some of you, as you've had people that you love um, in your own life that are, you are close with that have uh, left the faith. Um, apostasy being the idea of someone... It's not just an unbeliever, it's someone who has you know, been a part of the church and has left the faith. So I think the place to begin is the concept of the visible and invisible church. You've maybe heard that phrase before. Um, we see in the Bible that God relates to his people as a whole, um, the, the people of God, and as individuals within it. Um, and we need to keep that balance. So God... Um, redeems for himself a people, people being um, a singular noun that is a collective idea. So Psalm 106 is one of, you know, tons of examples. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. This kind of, that idea that God uh, relates to his, his collective people. And in the New Testament, um, you know, Jesus calls, uses the idea of uh, my church, Jesus uses that phrase, the New Testament uses that phrase of, of his church, the church, big C church. That's his people. And First Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Talking about, you know, the, the people of God today, even in the new, post, post the resurrection. And so what does God, how does God mainly relate to his collective people? He makes a covenant with his people and that, um, you know, the best example of that is, is the covenant with Abraham. 
Um, he, he speaks to Abraham first in Genesis 17, 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then you see as he continues in Genesis 17 that that covenant is with all his posterity as well. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So the covenant making with Abraham in verse 2 involves all his offspring as covenant members, verse 7. That's the language you get often of covenant people. And I, I think it can be difficult for us as Western individualists, you know, very influenced by Western individualism, uh, we can tend to think of God's covenant with his people um, like this. So it's just, you know, these individual relationships with people. Um, and then the other extreme, if you're more influenced by Eastern thought, it's going to be the opposite. You're going to tend to, um, you know, emphasize the collective at the expense of the individual and just think of it this way where you kind of almost, yeah, don't think about God's individual relationship with anyone. And of course, we need to hold, hold those together um, where it's, it's a little more like this, but even to get more specific and more accurate, it's actually more like the one on the right. Um, there is a, a representative through which God relates to his people. Um, Adam was in that representative, in a representative role. Through him, all humanity fell. Abraham is sort of this representative role. King David had this representative role as the king, so the people. Um, and that's still in place uh, as the new king, Jesus. Um, and, you know, in Genesis, it is in Abraham that his, or, that his offspring and that others find blessing. It's through coming under Abraham's representation, being in his people. Galatians 3 picks up that language. Uh, we become in, Abra in Abraham when we are in Christ. Um, and in 2 Samuel 20, there's these people trying to lead a rebellion against David, and they use language of, um, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Uh, Every man to his tent, so Israel. He's talking about representative language there. They're, they're viewing themselves as not part of the covenant people because they're not in David, so to speak. And of course, Christ is now the ultimate you know, example of that. We call ourselves in Christ. Um, and, and, and this, in some ways, is we are in the people of Christ. Um, there's an individual aspect to that, but there's a collective aspect to that. Um, so we have the community and the individual. The people of God are linked together with interlocking web of relationships in which the whole contributes to the well-being of each member, but the, the well-being of the members also contributes to the well-being of the whole. And there are times in which God speaks about his salvation as to his whole people. Hosea 11 verse 8 says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? He's talking about all of his people. But obviously it's not so simple. It's, it's more complicated than that. So what do we make of the particular members of his covenant people? Do they all have the same fate? This is where you enter the idea of the visible and invisible church. The Bible teaches that God's covenant with his people, has its outward form. So in the Old Testament, that was circumcision, um, the s participating in the sacrifices, and all of the temple things, um, and all that through the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you have baptism, you have participation in the Lord's Supper, you have church membership. Um, and this outward form is there to foster the inward 
form as well. Genuine faith and love towards God and others. Um, So Moses used this language in the Old Testament of um, the people of Israel are to be circumcised in their heart, if you remember that, as well as in their body. Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 9. The members of the people are each to embrace the covenant from their heart, to believe its promises of grace, to practice repentance and confession, to give their lives over to be molded according to the image of their maker. Sadly, um, not everyone who has the outward experience also has the inward. This distinction reflected throughout the Old Testament is crucial to understanding the prophets especially. And so we might represent it with a series of outward and inward circles. So think of the members of the people of God um, kind of as the circle. People, that's the visible church. Um, These are the people who God has externally marked out as his people. And then the members who have embraced the covenant from the heart are a subset. So there's, there's sort of this inner circle. Only God knows ultimately who they are. Um, there are ways that we can have you know, a strong sense uh, of, of, of who those who have embraced it from the heart are, but ultimately that is only God who knows. Um, when the inner circle is a minority, as it commonly was in the Old Testament, especially during the time of the prophets, the condition of the people of God is a disgrace to the God of the covenant, and he sends historical judgments to relieve this condition. If you think of the language in some prophets of removing the dross uh, or keeping a remnant, That is sometimes what's going on uh, when they go into exile and then God saves a remnant. So you see this idea, um, as people are to embrace the covenant from the heart, not all do. Isaiah 1, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and and those in her who repent by justice, but rebels and sinners, those are the people in the outer circle, shall be destroyed together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Uh, but judgment is never the end of the story in the prophets. He, he, he redeems a purified people. So this feature of covenant life, that there's an outward form whose purpose is to foster inward reality, but <clears throat> that not all members of the people have that inward reality. That, that also appears in the Christian era, in the New Testament. All right. So Romans 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And Second Corinthians 13 makes it even more clear. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And um, John 15 Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So if you remember in the Old Testament, Israel is called the vine. Um, So when Jesus is calling himself the vine, one of the main things he's doing is claiming to be the true vine. He, He embodies the true people of God. Um, He is the representative of his people, of the people of God. So the members of God's people are in him, namely in the people of God, but there can be branches in him that do not bear fruit, that is, members of his people who lack the living reality of the covenant. So you see that dynamic going on in in John 15. 
So that's just kind of a, a general introduction to this concept uh, in the Bible of the visible and invisible church, as it's often been called, that there is this outward people of God, um, but there is uh, within them, not everyone, not everyone in, the, in the outward people of God um, really embraces the covenant from the heart. Judas, of course, is an is a example. In the Old Testament, Esau or King Saul are examples. All right, so visible, visible, invisible church. Perseverance of the saints. That's another kind of starting place when you're talking about apostasy is, okay, there is still this, this, this belief and this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Um, and the Westminster Confession of Faith has a whole chapter on it. There's, um, it's chapter 17, and it kind of explains it. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. <clears throat> this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability, the unchangeability is what that means, of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. But I like how in the third part of this chapter, it says, Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sin. So just because we have this promise that if we are truly embracing God from our hearts that we will persevere to the end through his grace, it doesn't mean we won't still have um, struggles in our life, especially with sins. They may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve the Holy Spirit and come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Temporal judgments meaning just facing consequences in this life for the sins that they're struggling with. But I don't have time to get fully into it. That's a class in itself, but I think most of you are aware of this idea of the perseverance of the saints. You maybe heard the phrase, once saved, always saved, and, and there's a sense in which that's true, but I don't think that's as faithful to what the Bible is saying because it, that, that idea, once saved, always saved, has with it this sense of, um, you know, presuming upon your salvation and, and the Bible calls believers to always be working out their salvation with fear and trembling. And so perseverance has this sense of God through his grace will help believers continue to grow in their faith and continue to stay in their faith. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. All right, so this beginner's theology of apostasy. Um, let's move now to the parable of the sower. And I just included this picture in there. I um, some call this the, the, the parable of the sower, where it was given. Jesus gave the parable of the sower in a boat um, just offshore, and many believe it was uh, in the cove of the sower, they call it, just down from Capernaum in North Sea of Galilee. Um, so the parable of the sower, I'm going to look at, it's, it happens in th the three uh, of the synoptic gospels. It has a foundational role in all three in terms of the parables. Um, it's the first main parable given in all three. So it clarifies why Jesus speaks in parables. Um, 
If you think kind of leading up to Jesus starting to talk about the parables and starting with the sower, um, already in the gospel story, some are, you know, hearing Jesus teach already. Some are seeing his miracles and, and really coming to Jesus and, and um, viewing him as the Messiah, but many others are not. And so that you, you imagine the disciples are starting to process this and starting to struggle with, okay, why are some believing in him and some not? Um, and, um, you know, I think this parable Jesus gives helps not just his own disciples, but, but any believer sort of process that reality that some will accept him and some won't, even in his own day. Um, all right, so Luke 8, I'll give the Luke version for no particular reason, but his is a little shorter, so it's, it's a little easier to study here. Um, so Jesus gives this parable, and then all three Gospels writers do what's called a redaction. So they're in this story of him sharing the parable, and then they, they insert um, a story in, um, in the middle of their flow of something that happened with Jesus, just him and the disciples later. Um, and then they go back to Jesus at the shore continuing his parables. And you'll see that in verses 9 and 10 here. Um, so we have the parable proper, and then we have a comment about parables in general, and then the explanation of the parable when we have the parable of the sower. So um, Luke 8, 4 to 15. <clears throat> and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to Jesus, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. All right, let me stop there. So, um, sower going out to sow seed is, is a common picture for not only people in the agrarian culture of that day, but it's a pretty actually accessible image for people like us today, many of whom are urbanites. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a, there's, a very, there's, there's a lot of clarity to that picture which I think is the point of verses 9 and 10 in a moment of it's, Jesus is making it so clear. Um, and it says, And he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Um, as you know, there'd be paths between the fields, and this is typically where the sower would throw from, from the path, and uh, some would land on the path. And, and that idea of trampled underfoot it only appears in Luke. Matthew and Mark don't include that. And some think it might be an allusion to um, abusing the word of God. So like, because the seed, you know, it will become clear. The seed is the word of God and it being trampled underfoot is maybe um, potentially an allusion to this idea of the, the word being abused as well. Um, and that's why some don't follow it. But we don't fully know. Um, it was common for birds to be around during the time of sowing and they would pick up the ones on the path. Uh, verse 6, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. We typically think of rocky soil here, like a bunch of rocks in the soil. Um, but the idea is not that. It's actually, there's the, it's just a thin layer of topsoil, and there's bedrock underneath it. So in some parts of a field, the, the, the underneath rock might rise a little bit higher, and so there's only a thin layer of topsoil. Um, and so there's problems with that. There's, there's no depth, so it can't get its roots. Um, 
the seed can only just start going up. It can't go down first and then up. Um, the other part, the other problem is it doesn't retain as much moisture, and that's the part that Luke, Luke is the, you know, more of the scientific type, and he gets more into that. Matthew and Mark just talk about not having depth, but Luke talks about not having moisture. And then verse 7, and some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Um, so not only were the thorns crowded out as it's, going, as it's growing up, but the thorns would also steal a bunch of the nutrients from the ground. Verse 8, and some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. Uh, Matthew and Mark add some uh, 60-fold, some 30-fold. Uh, Luke keeps it just at 100, probably just a stylistic abbreviation. The common yield was 5 to 15-fold, so this is an abundant crop. And then verses 9 and 10, uh, I think it's on the next page. Um, is that not working? There we go. Verses 9 and 10. Um, then when the disciples asked him what, is the par- what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. What is Jesus saying there? It appears to say that he is, tells parables to prevent people from understanding so that they will not repent and be forgiven, which doesn't sound like Jesus to us, right? But actually the opposite is true. He's saying the exact opposite. What he's saying is the parables are going to make the call of the gospel so clear that if the result of hearing it is that you don't heed the call, you have made it abundantly obvious that your heart is hardened towards God. So the parables serve as both an encouragement to those of faith and a warning to those who don't believe. They kind of call the question on those who don't believe. They leave them with no choice but to believe or not. Jesus makes the call so clear um, and the, the, the beauty of the kingdom so clear. And the parables are like Jesus sort of putting the unbeliever in a corner, so to speak. Uh, will they believe or not? <clears throat> so, and, and in Matthew and in Mark, when they, they, they give a little bit more, they, they quote Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, and um, that section ends by saying, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And so the, the goal is for them to turn and for Christ to heal them. The grace is there if they do, but if they don't, they've made it clear that their heart is hardened. And this is part of Jesus' prophetic office, Jesus' prophet, priest, and king, uh, and, and you see in his parables part of his prophetic office of just giving a warning to those who don't believe. Then it continues in verse 11, then Jesus explains the parable to his disciples, and this is that redaction. This, he didn't do this in the moment. He, he does this just for his disciples, and then when as Luke continues, it goes back to the scene at the beach. But this was a, a later moment. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So this verse shows that a spiritual battle ensues every time the word of God is sown, whether around the dinner table, in the car, on the street, at a community group or Bible study, or here in adult Sunday school, or in worship. Uh, We are going to war every time God's word is shared. You see the, the spiritual warfare dimension there. And it also shows that one of Satan's main goals is to prevent faith, to prevent belief in any way he can. And then verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. 
but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Notice that phrase, they receive it with joy. You see there that, that someone who, um, you know, ultimately is not part of the invisible church, only part of the visible church, can really have the appearance of having uh, been a believer. Uh, they receive it with joy, it says. Uh, in verse 14, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And that choking, uh, it kind of sounds immediate, but that's a very gradual thing. It's a very gradual um, choking out of this life. Then, of course, verse 15, uh, there are those who hear the word and, and take it to heart, and they bear fruit. So it's just a few lessons from this text. The focus in each of these categories is more on a lifetime than it is on moment to moment. I, think, I don't think it's completely wrong to apply this to kind of a moment by moment as a believer. Each time you encounter the word, are you gonna, which soil are you going to be? But I think the, the bigger thrust of this is Jesus is thinking of um, people uh, uh, in terms of their whole lifetime. Uh, is your whole life work, are you going to be the good, the good soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, or the, the, the path? Um, and notice in soils two and three, the rocky ground and the thorny ground. In, in two, it says, it specifies they fall away. Um, that's, that's sort of this idea that they, they leave the faith. Um, in verse three, it never says that. Um, it just says they don't bear fruit. But I think we can take the negative assessment of the third soil um, as meaning that that person falls away too. And the fact that, you know, what does James say? Uh, faith without works is dead. You know, if there's no fruit, we can assume that this is a person as well who um, never fully embraced the covenant from the heart. Um, notice also in, in the second and third soils, the seed sprouts, okay? I take that to mean that the, the people that apostatize do really have a, a, a deep experience of the Christian faith. In uh, Hebrews 6, that I'm going to get into next, I'll talk more about that. I'm not saying they become true believers, then lose their salvation. Um, that would go against the doctrine I just said of the perseverance of the saints. But that they still have a rich experience of what salvation life can feel like. They experience the blessing of the church, community, of good teaching, of hearing the gospel. They start to sprout up and have the stem of faith, but then it never fully um, materializes. And I think we need to be careful, though, when using this text. We can get very into the details like I just did, um, but we've got to be careful to not make it say more than it says. And I'm saying that to myself right now, too. Um, it's not a thorough theology of salvation. The focus is on, are you going to be the good soil? Um, and I think this parable shows also why we have um, pretty thorough catechesis of new believers. We, we want to we don't just want to convert them and, and kind of have the number, you know, all right, they converted. Of course, that's incredible. And the parable of, you know, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one who, who converts. But I think there's also an importance of, you know, given the, the parable of the soils, that we help them really understand what commitment they've just made um, to help them be like the good soil and not just be like the rocky soil or the thorny soil. 
So that's the parable of the sower. I'm heading to um, uh, Hebrews 6 next, but any questions on the parable of the sower before I continue? No? All right, so here's the fun one, Hebrews 6. This is potentially one of the most challenging passages um, in all of the Bible. Um, so the author in Hebrews 5 and 6 has been challenging his readers to grow in their faith. He's kind of getting to a part in his argument um, where he's, he, he's starting to show them that they've been getting sluggish in their faith, and he's trying to call them to, um, to a deeper experience of their faith and to grow in their faith. Um, and if, if you remember the context of Hebrews, the, the situation, the, the, the danger of apostasy was real, especially going back into Judaism. Uh, there was a, a real um, pull and, and pressure towards that amongst many of the early church. Um, so he's, he's talking about, he's, he's encouraging them to keep going deeper in their faith in Hebrews 6. And then he goes into verses 4 through 6. I'm only going to be able to start this, and we're just going to have to, I'm going to have to leave a cliffhanger um, for next week. Um, but, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. So one thing, the first thing I want to point out is that, um, and you would need to have the whole chapter in front of you to understand this fully, but there is a grammatical switch of person. So right up until verse 4, he's been talking in the first person and the second person, like, you know, us and we, um, and you, you and we. But what person does he switch to here? He switches to third person, right? Um, why is that significant? that there's this switch of uh, person. I think it shows us that as he's writing, he's not necessarily accusing uh, the receivers of his letter that they have apostatized. He's, he's, he's speaking more in general. Um, there are some, in case of those who have once been enlightened, that this is a reality, he's saying. He's not accusing them that this is what's happened to them. Um, and then there's a few uh, keys to understanding um, this passage. So don't be surprised that the, the, the descriptions in verses 4 to 6 sound like a believer. That's the whole point. They seemed to be believers, but turned out not to be. And as we've seen already um, throughout the Bible, that's, that's just a reality in our fallen world, that that can happen, even in the Old Testament times. Um, Another key point of this passage is there is a way to be part of God's people only externally. You can enjoy many of the privileges and not be saved. And we've already discussed that. Keep in mind the same situation was true for Israelites in the Exodus. Many were part of God's people externally but never made it to the promised land. Um, people can have many spiritual privileges but still fall away in unbelief. All right, so what are those privileges that are named in this verse? Um, the first is they were, it says they were once enlightened. So the best understanding of what that means is they heard the gospel. They, 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 they received the knowledge of, of who God is and, and what he has done through Christ. 
then it says they tasted the heavenly gift. Um, This, I think, mostly means they experienced the blessings of God's community. Um, In the Old Testament, that could be referring to they they ate the manna, they experienced the manna, the heavenly gift of the manna. Um, In our day, you could think of they've um, experienced and taken of the Lord's Supper. Just because you are a communicant member, as we call them, and take of the Lord's Supper doesn't you know, automatically mean you are saved. Um, it's, it's, yeah, and then um, it says they shared in the Holy Spirit, and then a little bit later in the passage, um, experienced the powers of the age to come. And so I think this is talking about they've witnessed the miraculous signs and wonders. If you remember in that day, uh, the apostles, to confirm the faith as it was advancing, there were God had them do some miraculous signs and wonders. And, and um, you know, this was true in the Old Testament as well, where all the Israelites witnessed the Exodus. The early church saw the miracles of the apostles. Even Judas saw all these things, but he apostatized. Um, I think also, more generally, too, I think, you know, shared in the Holy Spirit, I think some of what's going on there is they've, they've, ex- they've witnessed the public activity of the Spirit in the community of faith. And then it says, they tasted the goodness of the word of God. They sat under the teaching of the word. And so see, that the, the privileges are piling up here. All these things that these people have experienced. And thus, notice the responsibility is piling up. Um, those who have fallen away from the faith and having um, experienced all these things and in some ways, they are in a different position than just any unbeliever who never heard a sermon in their life or even heard the gospel. There are, there are mil- sadly, millions of people out there who've never heard a sermon. They've never been in a church service. They've never been in a small group. They've never even heard the gospel. And so there's these, all these things that the person has encountered, and then to still fall away, there's a weight to that. Um, this adds gravity to them leaving the faith. Now, I'm sure you're still itching to know, why does it say it's impossible for those people to then come back? What does that mean? We're going to have to wait until next time to, to, to talk about that fun part. Father, help us um, understand these things. Help us um, learn uh, what you say in your word about uh, what it means to be your children, uh, but also the reality that um, not everyone in your, in your community um, ultimately follows you and, and um, help us to, to take that warning to our hearts and, and to, as um, it says, as Paul says in um, 2 Corinthians, to, to, to test ourselves, to know we are in the faith, but also um, to take encouragement that your grace is um, uh, moving towards us in, in ways we, we can never imagine um, and, and keeping us in the faith. And would we um, strive for that and, and encourage those around us? To, to build up their faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.